Dixon, Illinois was known really only for one thing, uh, and that's that it was the birthplace of Ronald Reagan. It's this countryside town, not that much unlike Litchfield. There's a river running through it. It's home to 15,000 people, which makes it a very much unlike Litchfield. But it was this picturesque setting, and it was the place that Ronald Reagan grew up in. And it's the only reason that it was famous until recently. Uh, Rita Crunwell was the supervisor of the city's funds, and she was extremely good at her job. She had done it for 20 years, and the, the city's budget never exceeded $8 million, and yet the city was always doing well. For 20 years, with, with great fastidiousness, she kept the funds, and she looked after them actually a little too well. Over the 20 years that she was uh, in charge of the city's funds, she robbed Dixon, Illinois blind for a grand total of $53 million. What do you do with $53 million? Well, ask Rita Crunwell. Uh, she said that she was supporting her lavish lifestyle through her parents who had made wise investments in the Campbell Soup Company. But in fact, what she was doing was setting up a secret account, making up fraudulent invoices, and using the city account to pay for the phony invoices. And she did it again and again and again, robbing the city, her home, of $53 million. But while on vacation, her assistant went to the bank to make a routine deposit, and then she asked a question, and through her line of questioning, uh, Rita Crunwell is in jail for 20 years now. Now, in our passage of Colossians chapter 1, we don't have a theft of money, but we see a very, very serious potential theft, and it's one that Paul introduces in verse 3. It's going to be the, the main theme of verses 3 to 14. Everything that you see, I was outlining this earlier this week, and you've got verse 3, and then every other clause is like subordinate to that until you're uh, on like page 30 over here, because it's just this long line of argumentation. And all of it points back to verse 3. And this is the potential problem that we're going to see in our passage. When you neglect to pray for the church, you're robbed of the beauty of the church. You don't see the beauty of the church when you don't pray for the church. It's specifically what God himself is doing in the church. So here then in verse 3 is Paul's solution. Because prayer for the church builds thankfulness for the church, continue praying for the church. It's, it's a very simple solution, uh, but we see it stated crystal clear. Verse 3, let me read it for you. We, that's Paul and Timothy, give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And let me just rearrange the word order to make it uh, even clearer, to refine it just a bit more. Whenever I'm praying, I start praying for you, and the natural result is I end up giving thanks to God. So here's what's happening to Paul. He wakes up on the cold, hard, stony floor of his prison cell, and he gets on his knees, and he starts praying for these people that he's never met. He's never met the Colossians. The only reason he knows about them is because of verse 7, some guy named Epaphras. But he gets up, and he starts praying. He's going through his regular prayers, and he remembers, oh, the Colossian believers. He starts praying for them by name, and then without even consciously deciding to do so, 
he starts praising God for all that God is doing in the church. So that's why I say prayer for the church builds thankfulness for God's work in the church. So Paul, he's praying, and soon enough, not even with a conscious decision, he's praising God after he started praying for the church. So with that central idea in mind, let's hop into our text. I'm going to divide it in in just two main divisions. Uh, They should be very easy for us to follow. So let's start with verses 4 to 8. And this is the whole point of, of those four or five verses. You have to continually pray for the church because God deserves abundant praise for his work in the church. So yes, Paul is thankful for the believers themselves. Absolutely true. He's thankful for all of these people that are in the Colossian church. But he's not thanking God for these people. He's thanking God for what he's doing in the people. He's praising God. God, you are working in this way. Thank you. And so Paul begins to highlight all of these things that God has done for the believers. And we see it starting in verse 4 as Paul notes the nature of the Colossians' growth. Since we heard of your faith, we've been praying for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So Paul says, okay, Timothy and I, believers in Colossae, we've, we've heard about how you've come to faith in Christ and we've heard about how you have a love for the church. Praise God. Those are two incredible ways that you are growing. Coming to faith and and loving other believers. That's awesome. Praise God for how he brought you into his family through faith. And praise God for how he's given you a love for his family, the church. So let's go just a bit deeper in these two ideas. God has brought the church to faith in Christ. Now, try as I might... I cannot begin to fathom the weight that Paul must have felt on his shoulders. He's God's chosen vessel to take the gospel to 95% of the world's population, the Gentiles. And I understand that Paul had great theology, but knowing that he's the chosen vessel, the primary choice that God had to take the gospel to 95% of the world and sitting in jail, not able to fulfill what God has called him to do. That's a pretty big burden weighing on his shoulders. I mean, just, just imagine if, if God had called you to reach over 90% of the world's population and you were sitting in a jail cell. Then imagine Paul's just unimaginable, exuberant joy when Epaphras travels 1,300 miles from Colossae back to where Paul is sitting in prison and he tells them, there's this place, you've never been there, but there's a church. So Paul praises God that he's given them faith in Christ Jesus. But secondly, God has given the church love for each other. Paul is rejoicing. Not not just that they have faith, but that faith is bearing some fruit. And the the, uh, overarching fruit is that the Colossian believers, they love each other. Paul had dealt with division in the church. Just read 1st and 2nd Corinthians and read... uh, Philippians as well. Uh, Paul had, had dealt with this. But these people loved each other. And he makes a note of it. And so he, he praises them for all that God is doing in this church. And he's so abundantly thankful that they had been transformed so that they loved each other in this community that we call the church. So God has brought about faith. 
in the hearts and lives of these believers, and he's also given them a love for each other. That's the nature of their growth. What's the basis for that? Why is it true that they have this faith and that they're able to love each other? That's what we see in verses 5 to 7. Paul describes the basis of the Colossians' growth. Faith and love, they don't grow in vacuums. God rooted this growth in three distinct realities. First one, God has provided gospel hope. Look at verse 5. We're praying always for you. We heard of your faith and your love because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel which has come to you. The Colossians learned when the gospel came to them that they have hope. It's the gospel. They, they heard the truth of the gospel and they realized through that clear communication, very likely from Epaphras, that there is hope and God has provided this gospel hope. And it doesn't even fully manifest itself in this life, but it's fully manifest in the next life. That's why Paul says it's laid up for you in heaven. The gospel hope, which awaits the Colossian believers and awaits us as well, it's in heaven. And namely, it's the inheritance of Christ himself and all the rewards that he offers. And that hope of everything that Christ offers and all that we have in Christ inspired these everyday believers to pursue in faith of Christ and to love each other. But the second reality that faith and love grow out of is that God has included not just the Colossian believers, but the world at large. The plan is open to everybody. God has included the world in the gospel plan. Look at the second half of verse 6. The truth of the gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. So Paul continues rejoicing. Not only did the gospel come to them and give them great hope that they're growing in, but it's also gone to the rest of the world. Every corner, God's plan involves all of creation. The plan and the hope is open to all. So Paul is just overflowing with praise as he shows the breadth of God's plan for the church. And he's also celebrating that Isaiah's words in Isaiah 55 and also 56 are coming true. God's word, it's going forth. And when it goes forth, it doesn't come out without accomplishing its purpose. And it's bringing the Gentiles to Christ. It's bringing forth fruit. It's transforming lives. And Paul, he's, he's bubbling forth with praise. He cannot contain it because there's faith and there's love in these people. And it's rooted in these realities. But you should have a question, right? If Paul didn't take the gospel to Colossae, well, how are they getting this dedicated teaching that's continuing to help them grow? Well, Paul answers that in verses 7 and 8. Paul begins to praise God for raising up leaders to shepherd and to disciple this church. This is what he says. As you also learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. 
Now, I noted this earlier, but I'll say it again. Paul was God's primary chosen vessel for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But when we read Acts and we see Paul in prison, we, we feel this tension. Okay, uh, God has dedicated this man to this purpose, but he, he can't fulfill that purpose where he is currently. In verses 7 and 8, as Paul is continuing to praise God, they highlight that Christ is faithful to his word. He will build his church, even when his chosen vessel is in prison. So look at verse 7, and we're going to see two descriptions of Epaphras. First, he's a servant, our dear fellow servant. And secondly, he's faithful. He's a faithful minister. Now, perhaps the greatest illustration of Epaphras' laboring together, being a, a fellow servant, we're going to see that in Epaphras' prayer life. So if you turn over just probably a page or so, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. This is where we're going to see the epitome of Epaphras' joining together with Paul. Interestingly enough, we see it in his prayer life. Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Right? He had brought this news to Paul, and he was still with Paul. Somebody else brought this letter back to the church. So Epaphras greets this church, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. In, in the following verses here, we're going to get out of Paul's thankfulness for God and what he's doing in the church, and we're going to get into his actual prayer for the church. And we're going to see it very closely echoes exactly what Epaphras was praying, that you may stand complete, perfect in all the will of God. These two men, they're laboring together in service through teaching, and when they can't teach because of a distance, in prayer. And they're serving side by side for Christ. Now, the greatest illustration of Epaphras' faithfulness comes from the book of Philemon. So if you want, you can turn there. It's just a, a short little book. I'll read verse 23 for you. Uh, Philemon, it was written just a little bit before Colossians. The only reason we know that is because Philemon was written about a slave called, or was written about a slave called Onesimus. And Onesimus is the one who brought Colossians to the Colossian believers. So this is the timeline, if this helps you at all. We have Epaphras in jail with Paul. They're both in jail together. That's when Paul meets Onesimus. He writes the book of Philemon, sends it off to Philemon. Then Epaphras gets out of jail. He comes over to Colossae. He teaches the Colossian believers. He returns to Paul. 1,300 miles while Paul is sitting in prison. And that's when Paul pens this letter, Colossians, and then Onesimus takes it to the Colossian believers. So Philemon, this is written while Epaphras is in jail with Paul. And this is what it says. Philemon, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. So before Epaphras had been released from prison, he's, he's right there next to Paul in prison. And he's not in prison for moral wrong. He's imprisoned for the same reason Paul was, for preaching the gospel. That, 
that's the epitome of faithfulness right there. No matter the consequences, we're preaching the gospel. And despite the threat, Epaphras continues on. He's faithful to the ministry that God has called him to. So he's this faithful servant right alongside Paul, and Paul cannot contain his praise. Not for Epaphras, but to God for what he is doing through Epaphras. This week I was looking at my bookcase because uh, my parents were asking if I had any books that I wanted them to bring up with them, and I'm like, my bookcase is filled, and I've got books sitting on the floor at home. I've got no place to put them. But I was counting off how many books on that bookcase have I bought myself. Two bookcases, totally full, and I've bought fewer than 10. It's like, so then I started looking at them a little more carefully, and I was looking at my devotional commentaries, like the whole set covering the whole Bible, my parents bought all those for me. Then I was looking at some of the more technical commentaries and I was opening up the, the front page of some of those and I was seeing names stamped in them like uh, Tom Wallace and, and Jim Coppins. Then I was looking at some of my language resources and theological dictionaries and, and those are all from Roy Short and some of my just thematic studies and those are from my youth pastor. And I, I'm recounting in my mind all of these people that God had used and is continuing to use to disciple me and, and to shepherd me. And looking at that bookshelf, it drives me to praise God for how he has so faithfully brought men into my life to help me to grow in my spiritual walk. This will be my challenge to you. This week, praise God for all the spiritual influences that have shaped you He's the one who brought them into your life. Uh, this means like, listing out. I know writing something by hand is a very foreign concept these days. But listing out people that God has used to help you in your spiritual walk. And then taking them by name before him in prayer and going, Lord, I thank you for this person and this person. And how you worked in their life so that through them you could work in my life. Look at the guest book from your wedding, cards from birthdays in the past, or pictures from old church directories, and laugh while you're doing it. Praise God for his faithfulness and how he's entrusted people in your life to shepherd you so that you could be a better follower of Christ. So Paul continually praises God for his work in the Colossian church because God's the one who deserves the praise. Nobody else could do these things that God has done. Bringing people to faith, helping them grow in love, that's a God thing. That's not a man thing. So he, God produced the results. He's also the one who gave the favorable conditions, like people to faithfully disciple, the gospel hope. But Paul now moves from describing his thankfulness, which has been built up by praying for the church, into the actual heartbeat of his prayer for this church that had never seen his face and that he had never seen either. Yes, Paul, he starts out praying for these believers. He gets distracted with thankfulness. It's a great thing to get distracted by. But we do actually get to hear what he prays. So let's look at it. It's, it's the second point here. It's in verses 9 to 14. You must continually pray for the church because one, God deserves abundant praise. But secondly... Because only God can bring about spiritual growth in these believers. I mean, up to this point, all that Paul has done, he's, he's been recounting facts. Facts about the church's existence. 
That's God. He did that. Uh, Facts about him working on their behalf. But these facts eventually drive Paul to pray even more. His thoughts about the church result in praising God, and the praising God results in more prayer. It's It's this beautiful cycle of prayer, thankfulness leading to intercession leading to thankfulness. But notice, verse 9, just the first part, Paul prays based on what he knows. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that Epaphras has brought a report telling us about your love. Since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. Don't, I mean, don't miss this. Paul, he, he knows something about the church because news from Epaphras traveled 1,300 miles What does Paul do with that news? He prays. He incorporates his knowledge about this church into his prayers. Now, there are some things I know that are are true about God and how he has promised he will work, right? Over here, that's where we're going to put these. Things that are true about God and in ways that I know that God works, right? Over here are things I know about people, specific people in my life. These two things don't have to be separate. And this is what Paul is teaching us. Our knowledge about God should intersect with our knowledge about people. I mean, if Jesus has promised to bring his work to completion in believers, he has. And if this particular believer over here is struggling in a particular way, and they are, those two truths aren't mutually exclusive. They should be wedded together through prayer. Right? Jesus, you have these expressed purposes to bring about something to completion in someone's heart, and this person is going through this trial. Would you use that trial to accomplish your work? I mean, I remember four years ago, I was interning at a church in Canada. It was after the service. I saw somebody I didn't know. And uh, I went up to the pastor. I'm like, do you know, do you know who that is over there? He's like, yeah. I'm like, who are they? And go ask them. <laughs> go ask them. That's spectacularly unhelpful right now. Uh, but in the long term, it was spectacularly uh, beautiful. It, it helped me learn so much because it forced me to begin building relationships with these people that I, that I don't know. So next time you see an unfamiliar face here, right, with the knowledge that we should pray based on what we know, what should we try to do? Well, try to get to know people better so we can pray for them better. Do more than introduce yourself. Certainly, introduce yourself, be friendly, do all of that. Dress them by name, but go further, right? This means when you see someone, you can tell that they're new. Yes, get to know them, go out of your way to help them, but you can do even more. Inviting them over for a meal. Why? Why why do we put so much effort into building these relationships? Or even if it's somebody who sits six feet across the aisle that you know this much. It's because we can pray better based on what we know. So deepen your relationships. That way you can better pray for the church. And Satan can't rob you of the joy of seeing God's work in the church. So Paul prays based on what he knows, but he also prays for the church to know something. We see that at the second part of verse 9. He prays for the church to know God's will. 
For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask, what are you asking, Paul? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is the, the, the sum total of Paul's prayer for the church, the, the heartbeat of it at the very center. Know God's will. Get it drilled into your mind. Understand it. Wrap your mind around it. Wrap your life around it. And it's very simple, but it leads to the more drawn-out request. What do we do with knowledge in the Christian life? We put it into practice. That's what we see verses 10 to 14 is spelling out. What happens when you know God's will? How do we pray for someone? Uh, When they know God's will, what should be the next thing I pray for? And it's, Paul prays for the church to follow God's will. Colossians 1, verse 10, I want you to know God's will that you may walk worthy of the Lord. To to walk in a way worthy of the calling that God has put on your life as a Christian, that means effectively to live a life following God's will, what he's revealed in Scripture, to follow it, to adhere to it. When you have wisdom from above and when you know God's will, the next step is to put that knowledge into action. I mean, Paul could have stopped right there. I mean, he's already given us beautiful theology, things to be thankful to God about, uh, things to pray for the church about, but he actually continues. He prays for an understanding of God's will and a life controlled by God's will. But in verses, the second half of verse 10, all the way down to verse 14, Paul gives us some incredible bonus material. Right? This is stuff that the teacher says, it won't be on the test, but it's good for you to know. So what are the results of following God's will? Because they're beautiful results. Look at verse 10. I'm going to read down to verse 12. They may walk worthy of the Lord. What does that look like? Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So, Paul wants these believers to understand his prayer for them that they know God's will and follow God's will. It brings about six beautiful results. So stay with me. We're going to touch on each one briefly. First one, these believers, as they follow God's will, can be fully pleasing to the Father. When you walk worthy of the Lord, when you follow his will, you can bring pleasure to the Lord. I mean, imagine that. A life led by the Spirit actually does something for the heart of God that makes it smile. God looks at his new creation, the believer, And he says like he did about the first creation, it is very good. I like that. Here's the second result of following God's will. You bear fruit. There's actually tangible results of this process of following God's will. When you follow God's will, when he transforms you through the work of his spirit over time, you bear fruit. As you walk closely with God, the anger that you once had, it's being replaced by self-control, by peace, by patience. The appetite for pleasing self, it gives way to being able to control your desires. There's fruit that is coming about through this process. You see lasting change. Third, 
as you follow God's will, you grow in knowledge. Right? Necessarily, as you, as you see God's will, you're going to see it more clearly. You're growing in knowledge along the way. Uh, I, love, I love teaching the teens. Um, it happened last week. It happened this week. Uh, my lesson uh, got derailed again because some of these stories that I've grown up hearing, they're, they're so pounded into my head, I gloss over something and they, they persist in a line of questioning. And I, I get to dive into that line of questioning and then all of a sudden, it's like these light bulbs that I didn't realize weren't fully screwed in yet. They magically come on and it's, it's this beautiful thing to see someone grow in knowledge as you unleash the topics and ideas in Scripture. That kind of growth and knowledge, it's a necessary byproduct of following God's will. As you study an infinite God, guess what? You have an infinite lifetime of study. You grow in knowledge. Here's the fourth beautiful result. It's that you are strengthened by his power through his might. Okay? This is another byproduct of following God's will. Uh, it's like God has called us to climb this mountain, but our bodies are only fueled by AAA batteries, and he gives us four-wheel drive and a diesel engine. We're strengthened according to his glorious power. It's replacing batteries with all-wheel drive and a diesel engine. He's overflowing with power, and he freely gives it so that you can persevere as you follow his will. Number five. You're ready to endure every trial with patience. This is Paul's prayer. When you encounter trials, because you will, Paul fully understands that because he encountered lots of trials, some of the most severe trials. But Paul says that through God's empowerment, you can endure these trials with patience. So rather than, than seeking to, to, to bulldoze right through these trials, Plow right through them. Get them over with. Instead, you're working within those trials and you realize God is teaching you through those trials, what does my heart actually desire? Why do I despise this thing that is happening to me so much? Well, I despise it because I really like this one thing. I like my comfort or I like to feel good about myself or I like... And it's revealing where our heart truly is. And Paul says, as you're following God's will, as you do this with patience enduring the trials, rather than rushing through the trials and not getting the lesson, you can have patience and actually learn and change. Here's the last one. Joyfully thanking God during every circumstance. Right? If you're going to face trials and you're supposed to be patient, Rather than griping about it patiently, which I'm not sure is entirely possible, do it with joy. When you follow God's will and you realize that even in pain, God is shaping you to be the person he's called you to be, you can do it with joy that transcends circumstances. Now catch your breath for just a second. I know that was a lot of material. But following God's will, it brings about an abundance of beautiful results but we can't lose sight of, of the main argument here this is not yet a reality for these believers in Colossae Paul is praying that it would become a reality as you follow God's will this will happen 
And I hope you would be like Paul in that way, that you would pray for others that that would happen. In the mornings when I start my devotional time, I, I pull up my laptop. Um, I am a product of the techno- technological era. Uh, so my Bible comes up on my left, and all my schedules for Bible reading and prayer, they come up on the right. And my prayer list comes up first. And the passage that always comes up next to it is like the sister passage to this one in Colossians 1. It's Ephesians chapter 3, and it's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. Um, and occasionally, I switch over to this one because it's good to have some variance. Um, but the reason that that happens is because I am so tempted to only pray for the physical. And I want Paul, in the Word of God, to shape my perspective on what do people truly need. Well, Paul says it right here. Follow God's will because you know God's will. Colossians 1, Ephesians 3, pray it either way. But do you want to know how to better pray for people and pray for them on a deeper level? I would start right here. Colossians chapter 1, move that bookmark tomorrow morning. I don't know how you pray for people in your life if you have a schedule, but I know having a bookmark right here isn't going to hurt. Tomorrow when you pray for others, take their names and one by one pray that Doug and Tammy and Pastor and that they would know God's will, that they would follow God's will. Because the results of doing that, they're too beautiful to lose out on. And then very lastly, following God's will It doesn't just have beautiful results, but it proves everything that the Father is doing. Look at verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father, this is during trials, who has, what has the Father done? He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we get just a a little bit of insight into Paul's mind here. He's not really praying for the church anymore. Now he's just kind of teaching us as a byproduct of what he has been doing. But he's going back to praising God. What has God done in the church? Again, this is an outflow of praying for the church. He's praying for the church, and what just happened? He's magically praising God again. He, He can't stop himself. So let's look at the three things that God has done just briefly, and then we'll be done. God has given them a heavenly inheritance as part of the church. So Paul notes the Father, meaning that we're his children, has qualified us to partake in a heavenly inheritance along with the rest of the church. So before salvation, we could never lay, lay claim to any of that inheritance because we were enemies of the Father. But through salvation, Paul is saying, We get that inheritance. There's three primary things in this inheritance. We have eternal life, right? We inherit uh, the ability to rule with Christ, and we inherit inherit all the promises of God. So every promise that God has made, it will be realized, and we will get to, to cling to it in our new life. What a great thing God has done by qualifying us for this inheritance through salvation. 
Secondly, God's rescued the church from darkness. This is what Paul says in, in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's rescued us. Sin and darkness, they had a stranglehold on our lives. But then Christ stepped in as part of the Father's plan. And he rescued you from that stranglehold. But here's the thing. He didn't just rescue us and leave us there. But he transferred us and God made us kingdom citizens. How did God do this? How did he make us kingdom citizens? Look at verse 14. We have redemption through Christ's blood, which enables the forgiving of sin. So Paul prays that these believers in Colossae, that they would follow God's will. Because when you follow God's will, there's beautiful results, and it proves that what God accomplishes in believers, it's true about you. But it's only, impos- it's only possible through God's enablement, which is why we have to continually bring the church before the Father, praying for those in the church. So when you neglect praying for the church, Satan will rob you blind, and you won't see the beauty of what God is doing in the church. And since this prayer will build your thankfulness and help you see the beauty of the church, keep praying. God's work in the church, it deserves abundant praise. And what he is doing is only possible through his power. We can't do it on our own, and we need him to be working in the lives of believers. Rita Crunwell, she robbed Dixon, Illinois, blind for 20 years. And Satan would love to rob you the joy of seeing God's work in the church and building this heart of gratitude for everything that he is doing. Don't let Satan rob you of that joy. People need God's enablement. So pray for, praise God for the spiritual leaders, the mentors in your life, how he's worked in them so that they could work in you. Start echoing the words of Paul here in Colossians chapter 1. Pray for people by name that they would know God's will, that they would follow it so that you can have a life of abundant praise as you pray for the church. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for this passage. There is so much here for us to digest. Lord, we could have spent several weeks just unpacking this. Lord, in an attempt to to see the unity and the full scope of the passage at one shot, Lord, I hope that you will take your word, you would give us an understanding of it, that we would know that when we pray for your people, that it will help us to be more thankful for all that you are doing, not just here in Litchfield, but also all around the world, that we would give you the abundant praise that you deserve, and that we would perpetually bring people before you because only you can give an understanding of your will and enable people to follow it. So Lord, give us a heart that is willing to pray for one another that you would reward us by giving us great joy in all that you're doing. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.